When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. And why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? And what would we do without the Dark Knight? 2018 marks the 10th anniversary of the blockbuster second film in director Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, a film that indeed changed things possibly forever. Bringing a violent realism to the superhero genre has made for a mixed legacy for Nolan's film. Looking at you, Justice League. Something that just might come up in our Sacred Cow review. Plus, Adam's conversation with Chicago author Gillian Flynn and actors Patricia Clarkson and Chris Messina, co-stars of HBO's limited series Sharp Objects, which is based on Flynn's debut novel. That and more. (laughs) Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting, your regularly scheduled agent of chaos. On this week's show, we'll be taking a fresh look at 2008's The Dark Knight, by some measures the most popular, most culturally dominant film of the past decade. A bit of a bold claim, so here's some of the information we've got to back that up. The Dark Knight is number four on IMDb's top 250 chart. It's right behind Godfather 1 and 2, and then, of course, we all know the Shawshank Redemption up there. It's number 15 on the Letterboxd list, which is a little bit more arthouse heavy of the top 250. In fact, the only film from 2008 or later in the top 75 is The Dark Knight. Wow. Also on the show, we will share my conversation about the new HBO series Sharp Objects. It's based on the debut novel by Gone Girl author Gillian Flynn. It stars Amy Adams as a reporter who returns to her hometown to investigate a pair of mysterious unsolved murders. I think five of the eight episodes in the series have aired so far, the sixth airing just this Sunday night. And I had a chance last month to sit down with Flynn and Sharp Objects co-stars Patricia Clarkson and Chris Messina for a panel discussion here in Chicago following a screening of the series' second episode. I think it's a really fun chat. We will share that later in the show. I think you will hear how much of a delight just in that Q&A Patty is. Yeah. How's Patty doing? You, you two been texting, keeping up? She's not returning my texts. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> First, ever since 2008's The Dark Knight, we've been asking superhero movies, DC ones in particular, why so serious? Our Sacred Cow review of Nolan's film wonders if the dour intensity was worth the price. Where do we begin? Are you 
year ago, these uh, cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, what happened? So what are you proposing? It's simple. Kill the Batman. <laughs> Here's my card. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Rachel's told me everything about you. I certainly hope not. You once told me that we'd be together. Did you mean it? Bruce, don't make me your only hope for a normal life. You're Alfred, right? That's right, sir. Any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? Oh, you have no idea. It seems fitting that we're taping this discussion the same day that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced it was designing a new Oscar category around achievement in popular film. The Dark Knight, critically acclaimed, fan-adored, and the highest-grossing film of 2008 by more than $200 million over runner-up Iron Man, did not win Best Picture at the 81st Academy Awards. In fact, it wasn't even nominated. Nor was Christopher Nolan for directing, though Heath Ledger won Best Supporting Actor posthumously for his performance as the Joker, Richard King won for Best Sound Editing, and the film earned five other technical nominations. While never cited explicitly by the Academy, the furor over the Dark Knight snub led to a dramatic change at the 82nd Oscars. For the first time in over 60 years, the Best Picture field would widen beyond five nominees. The message was clear, according to a recent article on Polygon.com. War pictures, tear-jerking dramas, biopics, and message movies were on notice. They now have to share the room with action blockbusters, superhero films, sci-fi flicks, animated features, and comedies. Or so the expectations went. And who knows, due in large part to The Dark Knight's legacy, it wouldn't be a surprise if this new award, which already some have dubbed the Popcorn Oscar, went to a superhero movie. Actually, it would be a surprise if it didn't. Something like current box office champ Black Panther or second place Avengers Infinity War, or third place Incredibles 2, maybe fifth place Deadpool 2, or seventh place Ant-Man and the Wasp. Basically, it's going to go to Disney. Yeah, it probably will, and it's probably not going to go to one of those latter two, but you get the idea. Beyond its Oscars influence, The Dark Knight's legacy affords us a lot of potential conversation starters, as a fair amount of conventional wisdom surrounds the film ten years after. We could consider Ledger, still hailed as delivering one of the best, if not the best, superhero villain turns ever, and how drastically his take on the Joker diverges from Jack Nicholson's memorable, but more comedically maniacal 89 performance. What about Christian Bale's take on Bruce Wayne slash Batman, with that mostly irritating growl to go with the cowl? We could consider, as Matt Singer does in a Screen Crush article titled How the Best Batman Movie Ever Ruined Batman Movies, its impact on the Warner Brothers and DC films that followed, including the morose, undynamic duo of Man of Steel and Dawn of Justice. Hell, we could consider Singer's assertion that The Dark Knight is, in fact, the best Batman movie ever, comparing it against its predecessor, Batman Begins, and its successor, The Dark Knight Rises, both also directed by Nolan, and of course, what of Tim Burton's Batman? Where I want to start is by considering a specific aspect of the much-discussed darkness of The Dark Knight. Its emphasis on realism, opening with a bank heist that might have been lifted straight out of Michael Mann's heat. Batman isn't a comic book anymore, Roger Ebert wrote to open his four-star review, which is tempting to read as suggesting a mere comic book movie wouldn't typically be worthy of such praise. Maybe a mere comic book movie like 1978 Superman the Movie. 
I can't speak for director Richard Donner's true intentions, but I think it's safe to say he wasn't focused on making us believe a world in which Superman might exist amongst us everyday mortals, nor did he care about using Superman as a vehicle to grapple with some of our most vexing modern concerns. Not in the way The Dark Knight asks us to weigh the methods and consequences of fighting for justice in an unjust world, or the moral and ethical price we pay in the pursuit of safety against terror. Donner brought the comic to the screen, and audiences embraced the fantasy, the cinematic capability. We got to see Superman really fly. And more or less, from 1978 to 2008, the fantasy was enough. For the record, it was enough for Ebert, too. He also gave Superman four stars, appreciating its self-awareness and sense of humor. But Josh, there's nothing funny, or even, frankly, particularly fun, about Nolan's gritty philosophical dark night. On this revisit, did that aspect further cement its status as the strongest of all superhero movies, or were you longing just a little bit for the sillier days of spandex tights? Not at all. I think it's the best superhero movie that we've gotten. The Dark Knight, I land firmly in that place after watching it again, and I think you hit upon one of the reasons for me that I still feel that way is the realism. And we should note that this is something Nolan established in Batman Begins. If I remember right, the costume doesn't even show up until like the first hour of that movie. So it's all about setting up a world we recognize and are familiar with and then bringing Batman into it. It's still a distinction in The Dark Knight. It's really, if you think about it, a distinction since The Dark Knight yeah, came is. out. I mean, you can say, and, and you're right, that there have been a lot of glum, dour, serious Batman films, superhero films in general since then, but none of them have really emulated that real world sensibility, at least on this scale. I totally agree. No. Maybe, maybe there are some, you know, like smaller indie takes on the superhero concept that by virtue of necessity to a degree will seem like they're more in the real world. But in terms of big blockbusters, none of the other ones have tried to tackle that. And that's why this makes it for me feel like a truly adult superhero film. And that was my main takeaway here after this revisit. The Dark Knight is truly a superhero movie for grownups. And here's an unscientific bit of evidence for that. So Beatrix, our 12-year-old, has become a pretty big Marvel fan. She's into most of them, isn't into the big battle scenes. She liked Ant-Man and the Wasp quite a bit because it doesn't have a lot of that. But she's into superheroes. She's into these characters and the Marvel Universe. I thought it'd be interesting to watch this with her. She decided to bail, I think it was about maybe a half hour in, and just said, this is too much. Hmm. This is too intense. It's too overwhelming. And I don't really feel the need to watch the rest of it. And that kind of revealed to me is, yeah, this is made for grownups. This is made for people who are willing to watch a movie like this and not get the scripted punchline every 25 Mm -hmm. minutes. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, It's made for people who don't need the CGI pyrotechnics fantasy world building. Again, not that that's necessarily a bad thing. But if you have the patience to look for other things in a superhero movie, this is the film that's going to give it to you. Now, you should know, Adam, I'm not one to overvalue seriousness, Yeah, I was right? going to ask. I mean, you I, love I'm... lots of infantile things. <laughs> Thank you. I wouldn't have put it that way, but... I, I was going to go with more childish, but more, that would have been nice. just came that out somehow. That been a little nicer. Marvel, you've got to admit, is first and foremost, lightweight product. We both liked quite a bit some of them, Mm -hmm. and they do explore more serious themes on occasion, but they're lightweight pieces of product, often really well done. This is a grown-up superhero movie because it's also going after real ideas in a way that's weighty and oppressive but not overwrought. 
that's where DC has since gone wrong. You mm-hmm. know, th- those movies have gone overwrought. And I think another distinction is that even as an adult, when I watch a lot of superhero movies, there's a bit of you who's slightly envious of the out-of-this-world characters and their powers, mm-hmm. okay? Like, that would be cool. You watch The Dark Knight, and you're relieved to be normal. No, it's and a burden. It's, it would, it's all about it this weight of responsibility. And it's, again, it's not the sort of burden where because you're constantly being rained on and your costume is a little darker than usual, that's where the DC films have gone. Mm-hmm. It's a burden because of the seriousness of the ideas at play, the seriousness with which the movie takes them and commits to them while also giving us things like outstanding action sequences, iconic performances, and some of that other good stuff that we do want out of a superhero Mm -hmm. movie. Well, you answered that wonderfully. You articulated it very well. And I think you even touched on what I'm going to follow up with, which is, while I agree with everything you said, I'm still thinking about how all of that makes it necessarily better. Meaning... It makes it distinct, and by being distinct, by being unique, that gives it value. For sure. But as you even said, you don't only appreciate, quote-unquote, grown-up art. So why is it that we need our superhero movies to be grown-up? I know you love the Batman 89 as well, and this is a conversation that goes back to the one we had with our producer, Sam, as we were standing in the Wisconsin River, having a beer, having a production meeting, deciding to come up with this topic, this 10th anniversary conversation. For him, it is the Burton Batman and the Raimi Spider-Mans that actually are, quote-unquote, more fun, which also makes them, I suppose, more satisfying. But it's not just about the fun, and I agree with him on this point. Spider-Man 2, for example, is a movie that has all the emotional stakes in the world, but also has that maybe goofiness factor that can be a good thing with these types of films. Sure. Yeah, I don't I don't need it. I don't need this seriousness. It's mm-hmm. not a mark I'm waiting for a superhero movie to hit. What I would say is when that choice is made and it's done this well, okay. then I'm recognizing that and appreciating mm-hmm. that. The Dark Knight does darkness better than those intentionally lighter superhero movies do lightness okay. for me. So it's more successful on the terms it's set than those other superhero films are on the terms that they've set. I think that's fair. And you obviously came down very definitively answering that you do believe this to be, as of right now, the best superhero movie ever. We asked that poll question to our listeners at filmspotting.net a couple of weeks ago. We will get to those results and that feedback in the next segment of the show. At the time, I was with you. I was inclined to say, without giving it a whole lot of thought and obviously not revisiting any of these films at that point, I was inclined to say, yes, The Dark Knight is the best superhero movie ever. On the revisit, I'll say I'm inclined to say no. I actually even bumped it down my Christopher Nolan ranking quite a bit, but that's more about those other movies being so good. I have it behind Inception, Interstellar, Memento, The Prestige, probably one other one, Dunkirk, actually. Mm -hmm. I think I have it at six right now. I think The Dark Knight might be more satisfying to think about and talk about than to watch, which I actually do mean as praise because lesser movies don't offer that satisfaction at all. And the thing I've been really wrestling with, and I think what I'll continue to wrestle with when it comes to The Dark Knight, are the contradictions of it. Realism, as we've said, is paramount to this film. It's dealing with all of these timely concerns and these philosophical questions, but the mob is still a major part of the plot in a way that feels kind of antiquated and appropriate maybe more for a traditional comic book. And it does purport to be a movie about finding hope in people instead of superheroes. That's one of these philosophical questions it throws out. And Rachel has that line 
in her letter. We're going to spoil The Dark Knight, by the way. If it isn't clear already, we're not holding back on this film. She has that letter that she writes to Bruce where she says, at the end of it, I hope you have a little more faith in people, basically. That's kind of the message of this movie. And the Joker tries to expose the folly of that with his whole two ships dilemma that the movie spends so much time and energy on. And it's effective. But after each side makes their choice, it never goes back to them. There's never actually any resolution to that scene. And I feel like this is a movie that doesn't really care about those people in the same way we're constantly being told of the impact Batman has had, how he's given the people of Gotham hope and what that's done. But it is something we're constantly told. We're never shown that. We never see those people. The only glimmer of it, maybe, but this is a lot to ask of this one character, is in Jim Gordon's son, who we see twice in the way he looks at Batman and the way he talks about Batman when he talks to his dad. It's called The Dark Knight, but I don't know if you agree with me, Josh. It truly is the Joker show. For sure. At any Just point like in the movie, 89's Batman was Nicholson. Yeah, show. I suppose. At any point in the movie, I'm mostly thinking about what the Joker is doing right now and what his end game is. And the Joker himself is a contradiction. He says he's this agent of chaos, and he even says to Harvey Dent in the hospital, "Do I really look like a guy with a plan?" And this is something I did not <laughs> catch line. on to at all the first time I saw it. And I've only seen this movie one other time when it came out in 2008. He says he doesn't have a plan. But the biggest thrills of this movie, Josh, are often watching just how coordinated and meticulous everything the Joker does is. That heist scene, right at the beginning, I keyed on to it. Not only how everything goes pretty much as planned until William Fickner pulls out that shotgun, but it still works out the way he wants it to. You remember, he pulls away in that bus with all the money and pulls right into the crowd of school buses that have just let out school. You're not offering as a complaint that the Joker is inconsistent, I hope. No. Well, okay. Well, this is where I'm getting. That's his character. I, I know it is. And so I agree with you. I'm using that to make my point that the movie is full of these kind of contradictions that I do ultimately think are at the core of the film. But let me give you one other one. The famous line about Batman being the hero Gotham deserves, but not the hero it needs. I think that in and of itself is a paradox. It doesn't really make any sense. I defy anyone to truly unlock it. You could completely switch around deserves and needs, and I think it would apply to whatever situation you wanted it to. But I did realize, Josh, as I considered all this stuff, that maybe what frustrated me a little bit about some of these contradictions, they're all embedded into the basic fabric of Batman. And certainly Nolan's Batman, there is always this kind of duality at play. Batman as a figure, he's afraid of bats. He becomes one. He hates crime, but is a vigilante. He believes in justice, but he also believes correctly the world is fundamentally unjust. He's also a superhero who lacks a superpower. And I think this is also where the realism factor does come in, right? For sure. We can't be Superman, but we could theoretically be Batman. And so I do think maybe Nolan is tapping into something that is essential about Batman as a character, but also perhaps essential to the world in 2008 and in 2018, whether you want to call it a post 9-11 sort of disillusionment, obviously the notion of surveillance and some of these ideas of giving up liberty in pursuit of safety were very prominent topics, especially back in the early 2000s and the movie explores those, or it's just part of this kind of postmodern condition. The movie does seem to be tapping into this idea that every day we're trying to navigate these contradictions. So I'm trying to 
pick out which of those things you've listed are mm-hmm. our actual criticisms because you've talked about a lot don't of don't think stuff. of them as criticisms i'm and thinking then, of them as building blocks to my larger point but that, to but the that's thesis why, about the contradictions being essential to this movie but that's and that's not necessarily why you're knocking it down no from it really is okay it really isn't. um yeah because i have other reasons for knocking it down we'll get to those okay good um yeah i mean i think the relevance is important and to note that these were things that were in the air in 2008 and they're also something it's another way of bringing realism into batman right is that okay in this comic book world this society is going to be wrestling with a lot of the same things that contemporary society is in a heightened way Uh, so i did like that element of it i almost wish that the surveillance stuff had been explored a little further on this revisit i i remember it coming in earlier and it's almost kind of in that final act. it resolves pretty neatly yeah yeah definitely so i think you know it's interesting the thing you say about not returning to the people on the boats and do we have a sense of the Gotham City populace in general? It feels like an empty city yeah. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of that is in terms of logistics, just you know, shooting on these Chicago streets. That's something I also want to get to is the magnificence of that. Being Chicagoans, you know, how it was obviously cool then, but just watching it again right. now is just the way Nolan uses the city is just unbelievable. Um, but I found a lot of – I found Gordon – and Gary Oldman's performance, maybe it's because we've since done a Gary Oldman performance retrospective and right. I've come to appreciate him a little bit more. Man, does his performance bring almost all of that into the movie. Mm-hmm. He is the representative not only of law enforcement, but it's the touches with his family. He's the representative of the everyday people dealing with this every day, not up in Bruce Wayne's penthouses with all the good toys, but with what he's got as a cop. And with a family who's facing danger, immediate danger. And it was just enough for me to give that hook where I felt like, okay, the Gordons weren't on that boat, but they could have been. Mm. You know, they're they're sort of – they were the representatives for that element and kind of filled in what was otherwise – purposefully, perhaps, something of an empty city. Yeah. We both agreed on this movie really being – about the Joker and the Joker's scenes being the truest, the best delights in the film. I would love to hear your take on why Ledger is so good here, because I think it's very difficult. I've said this before. It came up in my conversation with Bo Burnham. It's hard to talk about great acting. It's much easier to talk about bad acting and bad choices and things that miss the mark. There is something so grounded, I suppose, to this maniac he's playing and the fact that he is big. It's not as if it's not a big performance or in some ways even a broad performance. He's literally smacking his lips. He is. It is a capital P performance. It's the type of performance that you on the show over the years have typically decried. And yet we both feel like it works wonderfully. So what is it? So for me, first, it goes back to your initial comment about this being mostly about the Joker, and that is one standard we hold up to superhero movies. Often we'll say they're only as good as the villain, right? Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely the case here because of Ledger's performance. Okay, there's one thing we can point to for sure that we know and we talk about a lot is that establishing character through action. Mm -hmm. Be very tempting, and he gets some juicy lines. You've already referenced one to just define the Joker that way, but what Ledger does is even in his walk, mm-hmm. which is haphazard, it's a, it's like his limbs don't know where they're going to go until they're halfway there. Uh, and that's just establishing in simple action that this guy is literally 
unsteady, okay? Mm-hmm. It's in the costume design, the fact that his hair is greasy and dirty and uh, has still that trace of the Joker we know. You know, yeah. think of the makeup design. His hair has a slight green tint to it. Oftentimes he won't be wearing the white face paint. And oftentimes when he does, it's half smeared off. Mm-hmm. So it's that establishing again, this dissonance between the iconic Joker we know and what we're getting here. Mm-hmm. Now what Ledger himself does is, I don't know how he does it, but he makes unpredictability as a performer truly unpredictable. Mm -hmm. He's not just a guy being weird. He's not just a guy who everyone else in the scene is going to take a step back and and you see them thinking, whoa, what are you doing? He's a guy who's literally making his co-stars uncomfortable and you Mm -hmm. can feel that in the scene. Uh, And and then it comes down to the the script writing a little bit too in terms of who is this character. This goes to why I jumped in and said, yeah, he's a contradiction. I love that the Joker gets two monologues with different origin stories. To me, that's the scariest moment because you're scared by the stories themselves. They're both awful stories, but when that second one comes out, your mind is freaking out on two levels. What I'm hearing is terrible Mm -hmm. and it's different. And why is he doing that? And what's the truth about this guy? And realizing we're not going to know. You want to know how I got these scars? My father was a drinker and a fiend. And one night, he goes off crazier than usual. Mommy gets the kitchen knife to defend herself. He doesn't like that. Not one bit. Well, you look nervous. Is it the scars? You want to know how I got them? Come here. So I had a wife, beautiful, like you, who tells me I worry too much, who tells me I ought to smile more. You nailed it, but I love in particular that you focused on the physicality because I think that's the key to it. It's not even so much the great lines he has to say or how he the holds relish a gun, like in how he delivers like... them. Right from the beginning, it is the way we're introduced to him, where we don't even know for sure it's him, but we kind of do, I think, just by the way he's standing. Yeah. He's standing, we see him from behind, Limply. and he's got that lean, and it's just menacing in and of itself. And then in that bank robbery scene, when William Fickner gets up, and I think it's right after he's actually shot him, and the guy says something to him laying on the ground, and he's wearing the clown mask, and yet the way he tilts his head, even, is also menacing, and just gives you the sense that he's almost studying Fickner with curiosity. And I love that Nolan takes the time to actually just kind of dwell on that moment. And another one, I was going to say, it's so tempting to write him off as this kind of fearless character because he's someone who obviously puts himself in all these ridiculous scenarios and always does have a plan to get out. But I swear, if you watch that scene where he shows up at the mob meeting early in the film and he knows they're going to come at him and he's got that bomb strapped to him, when he leaves the room and backs out, He's scared. Yeah. Like there is a little part of him that's like, okay, this worked, but I got to get out of here. <laughs> right. And he really quickly goes. And I love that that element even is there in the performance. So the fact that it is as big and as mannered as it is, and yet somehow doesn't feel acted at all as if, speaking of realism, they really just pulled this 
guy off the street. Yeah, totally. That's terrifying, and I guess it's remarkable. It's what makes this performance stand out so much. And it's the audacity of it, too. It's the audacity from the very beginning of Nolan deciding he's going to frame this movie around the Joker, which, as we've said, Tim Burton already did in a very good Batman movie in 89. So there's the brazenness of that move to put all your chips in on the Joker and that it works. And I guess, you know, just thinking about the two, which we love Nicholson's performance as the Joker when we did our Sacred Cow review of Batman. It's almost like that Joker goes insane, partly because he thinks it would be fun. And Ledger's Joker was just born insane. And we may never find out the particulars of Mm -hmm. that, but it doesn't matter because it's just something seeping out of his skin. Yeah. And yet, as I tried to get at a little bit, he really isn't this agent of chaos he purports himself to be. He is in so far that his ultimate goal is one that we can't understand. And that inability to define it, I think, is what makes him truly this scary figure that he is. But he is someone who has an end goal, even if that end goal, I think, in the broadest terms, would be it's to unnerve everyone around him to the point where it manages to expose the hypocrisy of everyone in this town All of the town's heroes, any of these people who claim to be these knights in shining armor, that they can be corrupted. And it's difficult to understand, for any person to understand someone who would have that type of mindset. And that is what makes him chaotic. Sure. And, and, you know, the chaos, though, it develops a political characteristic in the way that you're describing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's the end means of it either. I think if anything, as he says when he's talking to Batman and again, mirroring the 89 film is how they're flip sides of the other. uh, It's just that he's found this opposing force that he needs to have his fun. And that's where the action comes into. And it's so brilliantly staged and thrilling to watch that we get a little sense of the thrill and the fun the Joker is getting out of doing all this because it results in a semi-truck in the middle of downtown Mm -hmm. flipping over on its head. And that's something he gets a kick out of. And you really get a sense that that's what he's, if anything, that's what he's after is just chaos. Mm -hmm. Batman happens to be the best opposing force for him to generate that. Yeah. I do think in general, the action scenes in the way they're choreographed, the way they're edited, it's a big improvement on Batman Begins, which I found completely lackluster, but rewatching it, I did feel like there are certainly better action sequences in this movie than others. And that first one, for example, where we meet Batman in the parking garage, I'm sure it's intended to be chaotic for a reason, but it's one of those that's so chaotic that I don't think you ever get any kind of real sense of what's happening in the scene where people are in the space. I felt like that one was a big miss. I think there are elements of that actually in that chase scene with the Joker going through the streets here of Chicago, but... It pays off with some of those moments, including that moment when that 18-wheeler does go head over heels into the road. That's remarkable. Those kind of moments that just kind of take your breath away, there are multiple moments like that in this film. I would say the parking garage sequence, and it's a spiral parking garage, which allows for the fantastic final shot of Batman landing on the car. The real Batman. I think part of the chaos you're talking about is because it opens yeah, with these imposters. imposter vigilantes. And that's an element that maybe the sequence didn't even really need mm-hmm. for what it's trying to say. Maybe they're trying to tweak this. We all know Batman's coming. And so it's a way to kind of take the air out of that and yeah. surprise us. I think it does 
add to the confusion a little bit. But if it's got that payoff of him landing on the car at the bottom of the circle drive, that's fine for It's a nice moment. The one that I would say uh, watching this time really is undone by its confusion, and it's unfortunate for the placement in the film, is the climax during the boat sequence Mm -hmm. where Batman is going after the Joker in that skyscraper under construction. And Morgan Freeman is giving him directions based on the sonar. There's a SWAT team, and the Joker's men have other people posing as his men. Mm -hmm. That one... I think is not well done. I'll, I'll, I agree. I, I, and that is maybe the weak point that jumped out at me on this revisit. The Joker lie that we've talked about a little bit, this idea that he's not really a planner, it did cue me into something else about this film that I hadn't thought about at all back in 2008. Batman and Bruce Wayne, obviously, that alter ego in these other films with superheroes, they're playing a role as the alter ego. Superman is Superman, and he's pretending to be Clark Kent. But of course, here, Batman is the alter ego. And I think what you see with Bruce Wayne here is he is always playing a character. He is either dressing up as Batman, which he is for most of the film, or he's pretending to be the party boy Bruce Wayne, because that also creates an image that people can kind of take for granted, and it helps him get what he wants. I love the way, for example, he arrives at the fundraiser that he's throwing for Harvey Dent in the helicopter with the three babes on his arms. He's clearly doing that just for show. So we have a Bruce Wayne who is always acting and always using that to maneuver in some way behind the scenes. Gordon's deception with his family, the fact that he tricks his own family into believing that he's dead. He even at one point says that he doesn't have the luxury of idealism. And what does he do at the end of the film? He goes along with this lie about Batman and how things played out with him and Harvey Dent. Even Alfred, Josh, in this film, the letter, the letter that he gives and then takes back from Bruce Wayne he ultimately decides it's better for Batman to believe that Rachel truly loved him and wanted to be with him forever. And so it just reinforces this idea, I think, that there are these myths that we all create. It's why we go to these movies and we cling to sometimes for a greater good. So I'm trying to think of the movie as a sort of commentary on this myth-making, but rather than dismissing it, on one hand, it's enforcing the idea that we need these myths and we need these symbols like Batman— At the same time, it says, yeah, but they really are myths. I'm going to show you how false all of these myths really are. It almost made me think of a movie like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, where at the end of this film, Batman and Commissioner Gordon decide that what's better for everyone is if everyone buys the legend instead of the truth. So you're talking about The Dark Knight then as sort of a genre deconstruction. A bit, maybe, right? You know, and, and I think there's certainly some elements of that at play. I don't think it hits those notes on the element of something like Unforgiven, which we've also done mm-hmm. a Sacred Cow review of. But yeah, there are certainly some things there. Maybe I'd even throw out The Incredibles as a better deconstruction of the superhero mm-hmm. genre than this. But I do like that there are those elements. It, speaking of The Incredibles, so, and I, I'm engaging in more hyperbole by declaring... The Dark Knight, you know, the the best superhero movie ever. Uh, just earlier this year, upon revisiting The Incredibles, which I think is what, 04, I, I said, why did we need another superhero movie after yeah. this? <laughs> what an idiot I am. <laughs> the best one, to my mind, comes out four years later. But hey, it's fun to talk in these, these grandiose terms. So when you're talking about Bale's performance, can I say that I actually liked him more this time around, really? I mean, he gets a lot of crap, I liked and him he's not—he's not necessarily a highlight. Sure, the bat voice maybe didn't need to be that low or growly, but I like the slyness that he does bring to Bruce Wayne that you're talking about yeah. there. You know, if if there's any humor in this movie, it might be in that performance by Bale. 
it's some of those moments like showing up at the party that way in the one quip, the one moment of levity. I think we get in the entire film when he sits down with Dent and Rachel at the fancy restaurant says, oh, they'll give us a table. I own the place. Right. So we do get some of those flashes Again, in role. that performance within a performance. I'm curious if anything this time did stand out to you as a flaw. And I will use that word here because I think it's fitting with what Jeff Milo, one of our longtime listeners, regular contributor to our top fives, he's in Ferndale, Michigan. He wrote in with this. And I do imagine that there are a lot of people out there who love this movie and adore it and yet have those one or two little things that they can't quite get past. Here's his. He says this. If it's a sacred cow, can we bring up the fact that there are always going to be small things we can't forgive, but maybe should just get over? Just like I often hear horror fans say The Shining is perfect, except for the -the over-the-top cheeseball scene of skeletons in the lobby. I have a similar quibble with The Dark Knight, but it's even more exacting. I can't get past the painful slip of editing or just studio-enforced cuts in the scene where the Joker invades Bruce Wayne's party for Harvey Dent, basically holding every attendee at gunpoint. And long story short, he throws Rachel Dawes out of a window, and Bruce, as Batman, dives out to save her, leaving his guests. When he saves Rachel, we cut to the next day, or at least elsewhere to conclude that sequence. We jump ahead in time, having no idea what the Joker did with that room full of guests. And I've just never been able to watch the movie without cringing at that edit. But, but... Should I forgive it? Am I being a shrewd geek? Disgust, Jeff says. Now, when I first read this and I thought about it, I remembered everything he was saying very vividly. I remember how it ends with him going out the window and they have that one little line on the roof of the car that they land on. And I was like, no, there's no problem. And yet the more I think about it, damn you, Jeff, I think about the Joker up there with his his hooligans in this Bruce Wayne party. And what does he do? Just just kind of slowly back out and get on the elevator and leave? Good question, Jeff. First time I also have ever thought of it. (laughs) Well, okay, so so what was he what was the Joker's goal there to get so this to get Rachel, right? Actually, I believe on this viewing, I noticed that the ultimate goal there was to get Harvey Dent. That's why Bruce hides him. He knows that, and that's why he hides him immediately. Or maybe he doesn't even know that he's coming for him, but he knows that he has to protect Dent. That is why the Joker is there. That's why that's immediately right. when he shows up, okay. they hide him away. But still, if he came there for Harvey Dent and he hasn't seen him yet, yeah. he hasn't even done anything in the scene that we've been watching where he's looking for him. Yeah. Why wouldn't we cut back up to him? I don't know. Looking for Harvey Dent. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't need that to, <laughs> you see don't? Him, to see him failing to find Harvey Dent. I could see it though. <laughs> I could just see Jeff and now it's going to be me forever. And now probably some of our listeners going, how did that party end? Do you just keep drinking champagne? Maybe nice get job, a few Jeff. more. Nice oh, job. Is there anything like that? Is there anything with this movie for you? You can't uh, get past. No, not that particular, the, the flaw to use that word would be the one I mentioned, the climactic fight in the skyscraper being yeah. built. I'm not saying it doesn't all tie together, but I do think it's over-plotted. All that stuff with Lao and Hong Kong and as intricate as that stuff oh, ultimately that's gets. that's completely to get the 70 millimeter stuff. Oh, it is. On the skyscrapers yeah. in Hong Kong. Right. And, Which, and that's a diversion. I don't need to is. see the party goers, but if you want to go over to Hong Kong in 70 millimeter yeah. and have Batman flying through a night city... Okay. You'll buy it. I'll, I'll buy it. I mean, can, can we just talk a little bit about the 70 millimeter and, and mm-hmm. we'll get we'll get maybe back to some more. Well, quibbles. I don't know that I could fully appreciate the 70 millimeter watching this on my TV in a hotel room oh, in no. Wisconsin Dells. Oh, no. But I mean, it was a decent sized TV, but I was watching it. And this does actually tie into another point I want to make. That's a pretty random one. But I think this is on my mind because of the news I've been seeing about eighth grade movie. I very much enjoy from this year that had these screenings or as we're taping this, maybe they haven't happened quite yet, but they announced that in like 50 cities, they're going to have screenings where kids can go. It's rated R, but 
they're going to open it up. The theaters are going to ignore that. And so people who are in eighth grade can actually go watch this movie. And I'm thinking about how eighth grade is rated R, basically for one kind of disturbing, but not at all graphic, sexually suggestive scene. The Dark Knight is PG-13, Josh. Action. It's action. I know. And it's just, it's it's such a contradiction, (laughs) isn't it? Because I'm watching this and I had some of my kids in the room, like Connor, who's eight, and I can't tell him to avert his eyes. It's a hard PG-13. Yeah. I think that's why B... Didn't as menacing watch it as all. the Joker is, those scenes where he's the torturing the pencil, but also where he's torturing the fake Batman. Yeah. The Batman, I should say, not plural in that case. I think it's just one on TV. That's gritty. That is violent stuff that I'm surprised they felt like, yeah, sure, that's that's okay for a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old. That's how the rating system works. Yeah, unfortunately it does. All right, so – about the 70 millimeter, though, I think as long as you have a screen big enough where the switching in the aspect ratios is noticeable, not so that it's distracting, but so that you kind of do that sit up and, and okay, here we go. And that happens in the Hong Kong sequences. Mm-hmm. And I think really in all the others, it just, it just makes the Hong Kong sequence isn't mayhem. But otherwise, in those other ones, it makes mayhem look majestic. It just gives it that grandeur. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to where we started, really. 70 millimeter is a grown-up tool being employed in a kid's genre, what's considered a kid's genre. That's just another another example of its maturity for me. And, you know, the, speaking of Batman standing atop tall buildings, that is one of the things I loved about the Chicago settings, as I mentioned. I love how the river is almost always in the background of these office scenes. I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful river, but mm-hmm. it also gives us a sense of a common place. We're in a real city that has a river that flows through it. And even if you're in this person's office or this person's office, we still see that and it grounds us. There, uh, the lower Wacker Drive chase is just fantastic. Even the the way they get that kind of awful, sickly orange, yeah. yellow streetlight yeah. glow that we're going to be driving in later today. That, that we'll be driving in out of here, uh, and make that part of the queasiness of the action of that scene is so fantastic. So, uh, yeah, you know. A sucker for the fact that it's set in Chicago, but I think Nolan makes the most of it. Yeah, I definitely think he does. If there are any listeners out there like Richard S. Rodriguez in Ogden, Utah, who remember the review of The Dark Knight originally back in 2008 with me and Maddie, and you're wondering whether or not I still cling to the idea that a better ending for the film would have come at about the hour 45 mark. I described it at the time as the perfect Empire Strikes Back place to end the movie, which is the Joker driving through the streets of Chicago. Oh, with his head out the window? His head out the window. It's what so glorious. Yeah, it's so great. And no, I don't actually <laughs> think that. I was wrong. I mean, I think at the time I tried to articulate that it speaks to my disenchantment with kind of the last 45 minutes of the movie for a myriad of reasons, not only in the way maybe those boat scenes play out the chaos of that closing action scene, also Harvey Dent's transformation, which I think is maybe a little oh, bit— Oh, you don't like that? Well, here's another I thing. I love that, that we get a I'm, villain origin story baked I'm contradicting into this. My, I'm contradicting myself here, Josh. I'll say that it felt in 2008 like it happened a little too quickly. It still felt that way to me. But as I think about it, I do recall that we get the moment, for example, where he takes the hostage at one point and is willing to employ a lot of techniques that he shouldn't. If he really is the white knight that Bruce Wayne and Batman think he is, he shouldn't be doing that. And Batman calls him out on that. We get the fact that he's working with Batman at all. It shows that he is so determined to get justice that he is willing 
to compromise yeah. his values. He's, he's that he is corruptible. That said, oh, well, and I guess we should add to the fact that he does get half his face burned and the love of his life is murdered. I will buy all of that as being transformative. It still doesn't change the fact that in the moment, it feels more plot convenient the way he turns to the dark side. Well, it was kind of cool watching. So Adeline, the older daughter, she stuck with it uh, and she was into it. And it was kind of cool watching. She didn't really know much. She's more of a Marvel person too, just hasn't made the the DC explorations. She didn't really know the Harvey Dent story. So to, to watch her experiencing this as yeah. just a character who you, you do think is going to be on the good side. And mm-hmm. by the end of the film, he becomes really, you know, it seems like almost an equal villain to the Joker. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I did feel watching at this time, paying a little closer attention to the plotting as glorious as that shot is out the cop car window. You simply could not have <laughs> culminated the film at that point. There are way too many open threads that Nolan did need to tie together. I'm so glad you came around. I was wrong in 2008. Not the first time, not the last time. Can I throw in one Last random bit of appreciation. Whatever you got. The ceilings. The ceiling shots in this movie. I mean, whether it's, of course, well, you think of Bruce Wayne's lair, that Mm -hmm. entirely lit, the whole ceiling looks like it's just glowing. But you also have those in his penthouse, the Chicago office buildings. We always get a sense of the ceilings. It's even at play, I think, in the police station where you feel like you're in a basement. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like... it's like the Citizen Kane of ceiling movies, right? Wasn't Citizen Kane one of the first? Yes, it where, was. Where it was like, yeah. you see the ceilings in this uh-huh. movie. Just love the touch. No, uh, it adds to the grandeur. It adds to the scale of it. But you're right. Even in a scene like the ones with Fox in the R&D lab, it actually feels compressed. It is used to the exact opposite effect. There's probably a lot more we could get into. And I'm sure listeners are going to write in with some of their thoughts. We would love to read those thoughts and potentially share some of those thoughts on a later show. The Dark Knight is out now and available wherever you get movies that came out 10 years ago. It's actually streaming on Netflix right now, in addition to, of course, being available on Blu-ray. We would love to hear from you. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, when we come back, we are going to find out if listeners think that The Dark Knight is the best superhero movie of all time. We're going to have the results of the film spotting poll. And we'll share Adam's conversation with the writer and stars of the new HBO series, Sharp Objects. Stay with us. Under the Stallworth calling. Who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish, Italians, and Chinese. 
That's John David Washington with Topher Grace's David Duke in the trailer for the new Spike Lee joint Black Klansman. It's set in the early 70s, and it tells the true story of an African-American detective who infiltrated a Colorado Springs chapter of the KKK. His colleague Flip Zimmerman, played by Adam Driver, helps out with that little scenario. It opens wide this weekend. Josh, you've already seen it. I haven't yet. We're going to discuss it on next week's show. Oh, and we're going to discuss a lot. There is so much to get into here. I I'm these last, what, two years, I'm, I'm back on a Spike Lee high. Chirac made my top 10 list. Mm-hmm. Black Klansman is a real thing and can't wait to talk about it with you. We're going to do top five Spike Lee shots yep. for that show. I'm so, feeling overwhelmed. Well, it, it is, right? Coming back from a little family vacation, trying to fit in some blind spots and just giving Spike his due, thinking about all the great visual moments in his films. Do you want to set up what we mean by shots, even though it is probably pretty intuitive. Yeah, we're not we're not talking scenes basically no. or, or extended sequences. This might be in one of my cases I'm pretty sure it's going to be a single image. Just yeah. an image he gives us, but it could be The camera doesn't have to move. It doesn't have to move, but it could, it could. in my mind. And it might. Yeah, in most spikely. Exactly instances. the way he moves the camera is crucial. So, I think we're just trying to really drill down and the more I think about it, I have been able to fit in a couple films that I hadn't seen before. The more I watch is that he's probably the perfect filmmaker to do this with um, because he really does deal in that level of purposeful detail sure. so much in his films. If you want to do a little bit of homework besides watching some of Spike's films that maybe you need to see or need to see again, there is an article in this past Sunday's New York Times called How Spike Lee Created Three Signature Visual Shots. I do plan to do that homework and consume that article before we do our top five, but I haven't even started planning my picks yet. Don't want to be too influenced at this point. We will link to that article in the notes for this show at filmspotting.net. If you have a pick, a favorite Spike Lee shot, we would love to potentially feature it in that episode. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can send us an email or send us an MP3 file, or you can call and leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. We have passes to give away for a lot of movies, Josh, currently, and we did just give away some run of engagement passes for Black Klansmen. So congratulations to our film spotting listeners now that that movie's out. If you get a chance to see it during its run here in Chicago for free, now available, Mile 22, starring Mark Wahlberg. There is a screening on Wednesday, August 15th. So not run of engagement. You're actually seeing it before it opens for free with a guest. Also, Operation Finale, which I am curious about. It's a thriller. Oscar Isaac, obviously a wonderful actor. Ben Kingsley as well. And that screening is Monday, August 27th. You can register to win those free passes at filmspotting.net slash events. One quick correction I wanted to throw out. Johan Ander wrote in. He listened to our top five films of the year so far show. And he says, I couldn't help noticing that Adam was praising Simon Russell Beale's performance in The Death of Stalin. I agree. It was great and almost scary, but he didn't play Nikita Khrushchev. Beale played Lavrenti Beria. Steve Buscemi in a fat suit was the one that did Khrushchev. And that's true. And they're both great. Hey, I would have helped you with that. Still have not seen. You still haven't seen The Death of Stalin. It is in my top 10 so far this year. That performance is in my top five, Simon Russell Beale, but not Khrushchev playing Beria. And that may have something to do with that slip up with the fact that, like most people, I'm guessing, who watch The Death of Stalin, who aren't my 16-year-old son who consumes this type of historical knowledge randomly— I had no idea who Berio was, but I remember Nikita Khrushchev. It is Buscemi who plays him in The Death of Stalin, though. Thank you very much, Johan, for that correction. 
This is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Yes, we do have a little bit more Dark Knight talk. A couple weeks ago, the film spotting poll posed this question. What is the best superhero movie of all time? We gave you only two options, The Dark Knight or Other. Tell me this first, Josh, even though you see the results and that probably skews your opinion a little bit. What would you have guessed it to come out? I would have guessed that The Dark Knight's victory, yeah, spoiler, would have been a little greater than this. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, and I'm curious to hear two some thirds, of these maybe? comments yeah, because I'd like to hear what maybe some of the other films were. If this is a Marvel influence where people are just all in on Marvel now, let's see what the listeners said. Yeah. And let's give them the results. The Dark Knight did win, Josh, just maybe not as handily as we would have thought. 58%. That's the victory. 42% voted other. Still pretty good if you consider it's going up against literally every every other other superhero movie (laughs) ever made. Tanner Blevins in Lexington, Kentucky wrote in, This exact topic has sparked many a long discussion between me and my pals over beers, dinner, or just good old-fashioned couch sitting. And whether you're like me, a wannabe film nerd who is lukewarm at best on the genre in general, or my best friend who lives and dies by comic books and the heroes who reside in them, we all can agree upon one simple rule. The Dark Knight doesn't count. Its inclusion in the conversation would inevitably kill the fun of the debate before it started because it is leaps and bounds above any other superhero film ever made. The artistry and direction Nolan brings to the trilogy is unmatched. So I love this. Tanner and his friends have actually instituted a pantheon for their (laughs) arguments about movies, which is essentially what we do here on the show as well. It's the Dark Knight memorialist discussion. It is. Jack Albrecht said, it's the Dark Knight, but this is a bright bunch and clever people who hate obvious answers. So I'm here for the takes. Well, let's give them the takes. Kit has a good one. I hated The Dark Knight when it came out, and I still hate it 10 years later. Obviously, Heath Ledger was incendiary, but if you actually take The Dark Knight as a film rather than a record of Ledger's spectacular self-immolation, you can see that there's no there there. The story, does anyone remember the story, is simultaneously bloated and thin. I agree with that. Maggie Gyllenhaal is utterly wasted in a non-role, and Aaron Eckert's Harvey Dent barely registers. Thor Ragnarok is 10 times better. Don't at me, Kit says. All right, Kit, we won't. Let's go on to Tom Morris. The Dark Knight has some of the best acting and grittiest staging of all superhero movies. There is one problem the last 30 minutes. Be it Batman trying to fight misled cops, Lucius using the spy tech, or the sudden ending for Two-Face. It should have ended with the Joker blowing up the hospital and Harvey Dent becoming Two-Face. Captain America, Winter Soldier, Thor Ragnarok, Avengers, Black Panther, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Guardians of the Galaxy are all much tighter films. There Whoa. you have it, Tom, Josh. now wait a minute. Did you ever say, Adam, this makes me think, you said Dark Knight is not the best superhero movie it's of all not. time. What is for you? I, I can't commit to a choice yet. I just know it's not a clear number one. Okay. It's definitely not a is, clear number one. Is it still in the running? And I think it's in the top five. I would say it's in the top five, but oh my gosh. the one that I threw out, I don't think here on the show, but with What's you and Sam. What's giving you pause? What titles are giving you pause? I would go back to the one I threw out when we were discussing this topic. Maybe because of nostalgia, and while wow, this is going to be a perfect transition here in a second. Actually, you know what? Let's just, let's just read them, and then you'll hear where I fall, 
Josh, Dan, because Dan, our listeners Dan are Wessler, very smart. Dan Wessler is yeah. thinking how you're thinking. The Dark yeah. Knight deserves a lot of credit for completely reinventing the superhero genre, putting it into a realistic, relatable universe populated by flesh and blood, flawed characters dealing with compelling conflicts that underline a complex theme. And yes, Heath Ledger's Joker may be the best superhero villain ever, but sorry, it is simply not the masterpiece some tout it to be. If the entire film were more focused on the Batman-Joker conflict, it might be that masterpiece, but it's bloated with unnecessary and uninteresting side plots. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 reigns supreme for me. Here's a film with a strong theme, a downright Shakespearean villain, a focused plot, relatable and realistic characters, and expertly shot and edited action scenes. And on top of that, it has the guts to not take itself too seriously. Here's a superhero movie that does it all. I think he makes a compelling okay, case. Spider-Man it's 2. in the running. In the running for you. Also in the running, Benjamin Casa writes in, Huh? Superman the movie. It's the best superhero movie, hands down. Classy. Classic. Charismatic. Fun. Exciting. It's... The best, all caps. You can't argue with that, all caps. Well, Benjamin, you're right. I enjoy Superman the movie very much. The only problem is it's about Superman. I I just don't think the best superhero movie is going to be about Superman Mm. for me. For me. A little boring. He's a little boring. A seven-year-old me just really wants to fight you right now. (laughs) Simon in San Francisco also has some love for Richard Donner's Superman, Josh. I love The Dark Knight. It's by far my favorite movie of 2008, and it's arguably the best superhero movie of the last 30-plus years. But the number one superhero movie of all time has to be Richard Donner's Superman. I was four when it came out, so I didn't see it in the theater, but it was the very first VHS tape my family ever bought. And it's the film that made me fall in love with movies. I must have seen it at least 100 times. Groundbreaking special effects, fantastic story, the John Williams score, a phenomenal cast. This movie had a huge cultural impact and paved the way for all of the superhero movies to come. The tagline for the movie was, you'll believe a man can fly. And I did. And I have been in love with movies ever since. So it might be nostalgia for me, too, but it has to be in the running just because it was the first. And when I have revisited that movie, it holds up for me. Absolutely. It does Completely hold up. different. Yes. The antithesis of The Dark Knight yes. in every way. But I'm okay with that. And I think I would actually still put Batman 89 in the running. And you know what? Listeners in a second are going to have another one that's probably going to blow your mind. But I think it needs to be in the conversation. Before we get to that, though, let's close out the Superman love. Hey, Adam, Josh, it's Brett Merriman in Los Angeles calling about The Dark Knight, which is a great superhero movie, along with uh, The Incredibles and Unbreakable. But the best was also the first, 1978 Superman the movie. Um, Heath Ledger as a Joker is an iconic performance, but I would say no actor embodies his specific superhero as much as Christopher Reeve. It's such a stellar performance, you almost don't notice he's playing three people, uh, regular Clark, bumbling Clark, and Superman. And while it's not as on the nose as Dark Knight is about 9-11, I'd say Superman is a political movie. Um, three years after the Vietnam War, he is a hopeful, simple hero that positively radiates kindness. Um, actually, three years after Pacino yelled Attica to a cheering crowd, we have a scene where Superman tells a prison warden, don't thank me, we're all on the same team. So, Adam, it's okay to love Dead Poet Society. It's okay to love the natural, and it's okay to admit you love Superman more than The Dark Knight. Yeah, I feel no shame about loving all three of those movies. It sounds like Brett is saying at the time, Christopher Reeve's Superman was the hero we didn't deserve, but the hero we needed, or something like or that. Or you flip him around. Or you then, flip him around. It works, too. It. Yeah. Uh, so he's right about Reeve. Uh, really appreciate his performance. And here, I'll give Superman this. It, it one-ups... The Dark Knight in the fact that it has Margot Kidder. 
and mm. a really compelling and elemental female character. I think that Maggie Gyllenhaal, you know, does fine for the opportunities she's given in The Dark Knight. It's right. certainly not a strength of the movie. That character, Margot Kidder's Lois Lane, is maybe the highlight for mm. me. This is the one that I said might surprise you. And Brett also threw it out there. Jack Roby says, Unbreakable remains the understated masterpiece of the superhero genre. More than any other film, The Dark Knight included, it captures the implications of what it would mean for a superhero to exist in the real world, and it contains arguably the pinnacle of on-screen supervillainy in Samuel L. Jackson's Mr. Glass. Containing what Tarantino deemed Bruce Willis's best performance, Unbreakable is not just M. Night Shyamalan's finest, but the superhero genre's finest. Benjamin Chambers agrees. There are only two possible answers to this question, Superman 78 and Unbreakable. Do you want fun? Do you want action? Do you want silly quips like bad vibrations then go for superman do you want seriousness do you want pain do you want thoughtful introspection and very real very personal stakes i love stakes then unbreakable it is my third favorite movie of all time behind 2001 and the seventh seal that's a trifecta it is a trifecta i think we talked about this only in a hot mic segment it came at the end of the podcast and i was just throwing out how a couple nights prior to taping I got caught up in Unbreakable, watching it on TV, and I saw like the last 90% of it, hadn't watched it since it came out in 2000 or 2001, and I was blown away by how good that movie is. I liked it then, but it is M. Night Shyamalan's best film by far, and I think it does belong in this conversation. Love Unbreakable. I think The Sixth Sense is probably better, but I can't wait to revisit it and Good excuse with, is it Glass or Mr. Glass? Yeah. The somewhat sequel coming out. I saw the trailer for that. Made me really excited to watch Unbreakable again. Also, interesting, we started our Sacred Cow review talking about the realism and that other superhero movies haven't really chosen to emulate that or haven't been able to. Well, here, The Dark Knight may have been emulating Unbreakable because yeah, no it's way. eight years earlier. And this certainly sets a superhero persona in a world that we feel like we too live in. Right, because the majority of the film, the characters don't figuring even out that he is one. Exactly. Right, and so we're going along for that ride as well. Jake Wardinsky says the best superhero movie of all time is definitely The Incredibles. There you go. Never before has a superhero movie treated each of his characters with more love and respect. Brad Bird's deconstruction of what it means to be a hero and how to balance heroics with the mundane yet essential parts of everyday life is the backbone of this film. The combination of dynamic character work, a fantastic score from Michael Giacchino, and the immensely entertaining and beautifully staged action scenes make up not only a phenomenal superhero film, but one of the greatest animated movies of all time. That comment there from Jake does remind me that in our discussion of The Dark Knight, one thing we failed to touch on is the score. A lot of people love the Hans Zimmer, James Newton Howard collaboration, whatever it is on that movie. I haven't gotten into the details of it, but I do think the score is a very effective part of that film. Yeah, I agree. One of the unsettling elements that B actually commented on, I think, scared her away a little bit. Maeve is on board with The Incredibles as well. She says it came out when I was a year old, so I doubt that I saw it in theaters. But when I finally did watch it for the first time at the age of five, it was the film that quite single-handedly made me fall in love with cinema. Bob Parr in his car with a police scanner, angry and defeated by nostalgia. The scenes of domestic turmoil. They reflected nothing I had ever seen in a so-called children's movie before. It's also the greatest villain of any superhero joint ever, one who manages to become more trenchant with every passing year. And then, of course, there's Helen Parr, a hero unlike any I had seen before, backed by a revelation of a vocal performance. She's imperfect and intelligent and wildly competent, and I quite frankly fell in love. The ethical dilemmas presented by this film are far more compelling and true to life for me than those of The Dark Knight. 
as are the characters, the visual iconography, and the score. Furthermore, and finally, this film has jokes. Very, very good ones. The Dark Knight is cute. The Incredibles <laughs> is a masterpiece. Well, Maeve might be right, though. I love the description of The Dark Knight as cute. Probably the first time it's ever. ever been called that. We close with Catherine. The Dark Knight is great, and if I was just using my critical brain, then I would probably have to vote for it as the best superhero film of all time. But superheroes are our modern myths, and our emotional connection to them matters. While I don't think Wonder Woman is a perfect film by any means, the image of Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman running across no man's land trumps anything in the Nolan Batman verse. So I have to vote for that. There you go. Great stuff. Thank you, everyone who wrote in and participated in that poll question. Looking ahead a couple of weeks on our film spotting Google Doc schedule. I mean, wait a second. This this has to be a typo. Did did Sam fit this? Did you do this, Josh? The R-rated Muppet movie Happy Time Murders with Melissa McCarthy is our segment one review. Are you still... In a couple weeks? Are you still playing with me? I discovered this (laughs) opening up Slack after some time away Uh and realizing for some unknown reason that I cannot fathom, you and Sam have been talking about the Muppets. No, we never would have agreed to this. Talking about the Muppets. Must be a troll who got into our Slack. comments and responses. And I thought for sure you're playing a practical joke. I, I had to, I had to come out and ask if you guys were messing with me. I would love to do this. There was even some discussion of a puppet related top five. I, I mean, would, I would get a substitute. <laughs> this is what I'm thinking. Is, is Adam going on vacation again? Are we going to do this? Yeah. Can we do this? I mean, I mean, if it means that much to you, Josh, oh, it'd be so you can fun. have a puppy and we so can fun. review the Happy Time Murders top five TBD. But this. Review that we are going to do. It prompted a question, at least among me and Sam, which is essentially who is looking forward to Happy Time Murders? Besides Josh. And why? Besides Josh. And we have gone back and forth a little bit, the two of us, Josh, on how we could word this question. Let's just go ahead and do it the way Sam, our producer, intended. I look forward to seeing what answers we get. The options are I'm a Muppets fan and can't wait. Check. The Muppets are fine, but no thanks. I'm Muppet agnostic and curious. I'm Muppet agnostic and not interested or other. So we are basically trying to determine if you are remotely a Muppets fan, but also what you think of this film, if you know anything about it at all. And I have not watched a full trailer yet, but just knowing that it's Melissa McCarthy and it's R-rated and it's a Muppet movie, my answer, Josh, is you'll be happy to hear, I think, I'm Muppet agnostic and curious. You've got to be curious. You have to at least be curious. Now, I'm looking as we're talking here. Is this really considered a Muppet movie? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm Sam looking... just thinks anytime puppets are employed, well, they're Muppets. Well, Brian Henson is the director. Right. So obvious connection there. It does look on IMDb. I'm looking at the production companies. Jim Henson Company is listed. A bunch of others. Disney is not. So, you know, I don't know if, if this could be considered um, Muppet canon. But I don't care with that pedigree, that premise, that cast. I think Elizabeth Banks is in this as well, which is always promising. Maya Rudolph, I'm in. So what you're saying is this is going to be one of those classic film spotting polls where next week we come on and we give a big correction and we've completely changed all the answers and the phrasing and it's a new poll. That would be very Muppet-like. <laughs> it would. What if after you die... Part of you goes to heaven, part of you stays here. Just to see how things turn out. 
That's the eerie opening to the trailer for HBO's limited series, Sharp Objects. I had the chance to moderate a Q&A following an episode two screening here in Chicago on Friday, July 13th with the writer Gillian Flynn. She wrote the book of the same name that the series is based on. Also, Chris Messina was there and Patricia Clarkson. The series stars Amy Adams in her first major role on TV. She plays a reporter who goes back to her small hometown and has to investigate some unsolved crimes. There are two girls missing, one of whom at the beginning was found dead and presumed murdered. Now, I know, Josh, nobody's going to have any sympathy for me out there, especially people who are caught up in this series. They're engrossed in it. They would love to binge watch it if they could. But even me doing this Q&A, they only shared with me, as they did other media, episodes one through seven. (laughs) So I've seen this entire series except for the final episode. Imagine my surprise at learning that Sarah and I were ready to put on the eighth episode and see how this whole thing culminates before anyone else has even watched a single episode and finding that, no, we only have episodes one through seven. I don't know how it all comes together. And alas, we're just going to have to wait and watch it with the rest of the viewing public. I've talked about this event in the Q&A a little bit on the show. We did want to give our listeners a chance to hear the conversation. If you haven't started this series yet, or if you don't even necessarily have designs right now to watch it, I wouldn't say you can't listen to this conversation with these three artists. We don't get into spoiler territory at all. So here's that panel, starting with me bringing those artists to the stage. How's everyone doing? Thanks for coming. Uh, How'd you like the episode? Good stuff. All right, well, we'll get to the people you're really here to see and hear from. I'm going to start with our first special guest. She's the author of three novels, Sharp Objects, Dark Places, and Gone Girl. She wrote the screenplay for David Fincher's film adaptation of Gone Girl, one of the best films of 2014. Her latest release, The Grown Up, is an Edgar Award-winning short story that has been optioned by Universal. She's a self-proclaimed movie geek with a journalism degree. She earned her master's in journalism uh, here in Evanston, Northwestern, before moving to New York to write for Entertainment Week. Weekly, which she did for a decade. She lives here in Chicago with her husband, her children, and black cat named Roy. Gillian Flynn. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Next guest is one of those guys I think all of us just love seeing whenever he pops up on a movie screen or TV screen. He is known to you probably from such shows as Damages, Aaron Sorkin's in the newsroom, and the Mini Project. Movies like Argo, Away We Go, Greenberg, Live By Night, and Julie and Julia, alongside his Sharp Objects co-star Amy Adams. More importantly, regular listeners of Film Spotting. Have any Film Spotting listeners in the house tonight? Okay, a few. Good. Uh, we'll know. Most importantly, he was a strong contender for our recent top five movie Chris's. Chris Messina. What's up, Chicago? Hey, man. Thank you. Yep. 
And finally, where to begin? Uh, an Academy Award-nominated actress for Pieces of April, Emmy Award-winning uh, actress on the HBO series Six Feet Under. She recently completed filming the sixth and final season of House of Cards and uh, the detective film Out of Blue, based on the Martin Amos novel. She plays the lead character in that film. Her next film is Isabel Cochette's The Bookshop. It opens here in the U.S. August 24th. Other film appearances, so many to name. Far From Heaven, Good Night and Good Luck, The Station Agent, Shutter Island. She's part of the, maybe the best on-screen married couple ever with Stanley Tucci and Easy A. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, Tony nominated as well for The Elephant Man in 2014. She can do it all. Patricia Clarkson. Thank you. All right, so we'll start at the beginning here, appropriately. How did you come to this project? And obviously, Gillian, this is a project where you wrote the novel, your debut novel in 2006. But how did it come about being a TV series on HBO? Were you approached, or were you the one doing the approaching? I was the one doing the approaching. It, I mean, it took a long time. It was you know, 12, I wrote 12 years ago, the novel, and there were a lot of crickets when, <laughs> when we were first looking around for anyone who wanted to do it. There wasn't much interest. And, and when we finally kind of started looking around again, you know, we were, were taking it around town, and it was us driving around town and, hmm. and seeing who might be interested. And, and HBO seemed like such an immediate fit for us and, and a hopeful fit yeah. because they are so daring and they are the ones who are kind of at the, the forefront of this mm -hmm. type of thing. And, you know, we had our fingers crossed from the beginning. Yeah. Well, we'll talk a lot about the adaptation and, and that process and its rewards, but why does it work so well, or why did you envision it would work so well as a series, as opposed to a single movie? You know, for this particular one, I worried that if it was going to be a movie, we might lose Camille. And when I started out writing the book, I wrote it as a character study. I wanted to do a character study about a troubled, alcoholic, self-cutting, <laughs> Um, you know, disturbed, psychologically disturbed, not so likable woman. Mm -hmm. And I knew to do that, I was going to have to trick people into reading it. And so to do that, I kind of hid it inside this juicy southern gothic mystery. And so that was kind of like the little dark pit, <laughs> dark cherry pit inside the delicious coated uh, chocolate yeah. um, that I was slipping people. But what I was worried was that we're, it was going to be all chocolate mm -hmm. uh, if, if we sent it to, to keep the awful, the awful candy reference that I'm doing. A couple of candy <laughs> metaphors I'm doing here. I'm just going to keep going with yeah, it. You're weaving um, it well. But I did worry that we would lose Camille, that if we were going to do a two-hour movie, because that was certainly kind of the way it was going when I was hearing from people that was going to be just a procedural, just a detective story, just a thriller, kind of a, just a scary horror movie, that type of thing, and that we were going to lose that character study. And, and to me, it needed, it needed that room to breathe. Yeah. It needed that room to have to the generational violence, because that was also the, the sort of thing I wanted to do. You know, what do women inflict on each other over generations? And, you know, to, to have that look at, at what it looks like women generationally, you know, over the years and, and be able to tell that family saga. Yeah. And that was important. Well, let's go then to one of the women inflicting it on screen here. <laughs> uh, Patricia Clarkson. 
<laughs> what, what drew you to? Is that, who's here? <laughs> <laughs> what attracted you to the series? I think what always attracts me most is, first and foremost, is the writing, great writing. You have to have character, a true character. I found um, Adora as frightening and as complicated as she can be and harsh and difficult and everybody has their words to attach to Adora. I, I found it, it was frightening to play someone frightening and I wanted that journey. I wanted to work with Gillian. I think she's exceptional. Uh, she is Miss Chicago, as a man told me today, <laughs> uh, yesterday, uh, called her that. But I, I wanted the opportunity to come back to HBO. I loved working there on Six Feet Under and it just, everything felt right to, to be there, but it was the right, it was this very complicated, the, the shades of darkness and lightness that are sometimes in equal parts, oddly, mm -hmm. that I, I wanted to see if I could actually do that. Yeah. So, Chris, I'm guessing working with these two women was probably part of what drew you to it as well? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean... I keep saying this, this whole experience has been a master class all around from the source material, from the book, to the scripts, to Jean-Marc Vallée, the director, to Patty Clarkson, to Amy Adams across the board, Elizabeth Perkins, Matt Craven, the, the list goes on. It's a phenomenal cast. So hopefully, you know, I can steal some of this and uh, bring it to the next project. Yeah. So Gillian, even with how involved you are with this as a, as a producer and as a writer, you're going back and, and looking at material, as you said, that you wrote in 2006. Um, right. How protective of that original material were you? What things were you maybe not protective of at all? You know, I didn't feel that protective, oddly enough. Part of it is the deal I make, and I did this with Gone Girl, too, which is books and movies are different things, and they have to be. And I've seen movies that are slavishly faithful to the books, you know, they're made of, and they don't work, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, great, this was wonderfully faithful, but I don't know that that necessarily makes it a great movie. They, they, they have to be different things. And I also don't know why you would want to go to a movie that's exactly like the book. You know, it's like, well, great. I could have just stayed home and read the book again. Uh, you know, I like to go to movies or watch TV that adds something or does an interesting interpretation that brings something new and, and makes me think differently about the material that I've read and kind of opens my eyes a little bit. I, I like that. I, I always say I, I like to think of them as complementary to each other rather than that they have to be exactly matching bookends. So I wasn't particularly feeling that protective of it. You know, if they'd said that it's going to be cast entirely of puppies and it's a musical, <laughs> I would have been like, huh. I would, I don't I know. would have been a rock sure. yeah. <laughs> So when you're revisiting material like this, though, um, artists in any medium sometimes, especially with a debut piece, they can look at it and just think about all the things they might have done differently now, all the, all the experience and wisdom they've gained. Did you have any struggles like that revisiting the material? You know, I thought it was great. <laughs> I, was, I was like, yes, yep, You did it. <laughs> because it 
was. It was. I mean, I, you know, I thought it was exactly the book that I was yeah. trying to write. I don't okay. know that if I sat down and I was trying to write it now, I would write it differently. I have no idea. I'm a totally different person now. Mm -hmm. But for the book that I was trying to write then, it was exactly that book I was trying to write. And I loved reading it. I was reading it, and I was dreading going back and reading it. It took me a long, I mean, we were in the middle of the writer's room and I still hadn't read it. People would be asking me questions <laughs> about it. I'd be like, yeah, kind of trying to fake my, like, right, that, uh, yeah, that happens. <laughs> uh, I'll get back to you on that. Because um, I was dreading so much yeah. how it held up, and, but I was, I was happily surprised. I was happy with the book. So Chris, as an actor, when there is source material like this uh, to pull from, is that part of the process for you to always read the book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I've never done it differently. And there was there, reading the book, it was so cinematic. And for me, it gave me, you know, everything I, I, I needed. So I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. Although, you know, I didn't. Patty didn't. Yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't read the book <laughs> okay. when I got the offer. And I said... Um, I'd read Gone Girl, and I said, oh, my God. So I, but I, I said, let me read the book. And then, and then they were like, no, 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 just talk to... I talked to Gillian and, and Marty Knoxon and John Mark. And I hadn't read the book, and it maybe was the best decision I made because I only knew Adora in this form. I only knew her in a cinematic form. And... I thought she was amazing and glorious and perfect. And it was exactly how I had to come to her. I shot these eight episodes and then I read the book when I got back to New York. I remember I was on my, this little guest bed I have and I was weeping with my dog next to me and I said, oh my God, I can't believe I just played this <laughs> <laughs> And it was, so it was a, a wise decision. Mm -hmm. But Gillian said, don't read it, don't read it, because she's the wisest of, yeah. the, of us all. <laughs> and um, it yeah. was an interesting way to come, come around to it. So. Yeah, well, following that up, and, and Gillian, you've talked a lot already about kind of wanting to have a, a dark and troubled character, female character here on screen. And I read an interview with you earlier today where you said, it's what I'm interested in. The more types of women we see is what's important. And I think, Patricia, you touched on this maybe already when you mentioned so eloquently that um, playing someone who frightened you um, was something that drew you to Adora. But is there anything in addition to that? Is that what type of woman is Adora that might be different from the other types of women you've played in your career? Well, it was also just the depth and the breadth of this character that we often don't get when we're doing a film or sometimes, depending on the project we're doing. It was a life. I got to live a full life of a character. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of these mini-series, these eight parts, because they do. They actually let you... Uh, you really feel the blood, the pulse, the skin, the bones, you really actually, you have to take on their DNA. And often in films, you sometimes don't quite get to that. But in eight episodes, you do. And so I think that was an unusual moment for me in this, in, in all the work I've done to kind of carry a character for a distance. Goodness, is something the matter? No, Mama, not at all. I'm just in town on business. Business? I didn't expect you. 
The house is not up to par for visitors, I'm afraid. Looks just fine. Come on inside. Good. Can I get you something to drink? Alan and I are having amaretus hours. I'll just have what you're having, thanks. We're in back. It's just nice and cool now with the breeze. Where are you staying? Well, it's funny you should ask. I was hoping that I could stay here for a few days. I just wish you'd phoned. So, Gillian, I was really struck by something looking at your bio today on your website. Right there in the first paragraph, you mentioned being born in Kansas City, community college professor of parents. Your mom taught reading, your dad film, and you recall happy memories of seeing Alien, Psycho, and Bonnie and Clyde. Very young, like seven years old, which I was one of those kids, too, who my parents just didn't supervise what I was seeing. So this is what, this is what happens. Um, but... You know, it hit me that there are, you mentioned those three films, and there are certainly body horror elements like there are in Alien in Sharp Objects. And if you look at uh, Psycho, we have a large house here where we have our heroine playing a guest, essentially, in that house, run by a, a domineering mother. Oh, God. And, um, you know, I think Emma, uh, in particular, in Sharp Objects, she's kind of like... She could be Faye Dunaway at the beginning of Bonnie and Clyde, the bird in the birdcage, just dying for any type of excitement yeah. um, and escape well. from her room. So what I'm getting at here, if anyone's <laughs> following me, is that it seems that uh, consciously or unconsciously, those, those films did have a profound influence on you. And uh, I'm curious, if you really do point to those three as kind of seminal pieces for you, what other pieces of art really drove you to get into what you're doing now? Certainly Psycho. Psycho definitely was one of those that I revisited a lot, you know, like uh, come home from school, like, oh, uh, what, like maybe I'll have some apple with peanut butter and Psycho. <laughs> my, my mom is in the audience. I can, <laughs> there she is. She, 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 I'm not saying she approves of this, but right. she can attest my love. I know it was just really, I found that movie really fascinating. And I was not sneaking away. Like, my dad was introducing, like, these are important films for you to see. Like, here's why. Um, you know, because since he was a film professor. But, but Psycho in particular, I was fascinated by it. I've always, been fa I've always been fascinated by any story that has a big, looming house. You're absolutely right. You know, everything from Psycho to, and I will proudly say, V.C. Andrews, Flowers in the Attic. I will not call that a guilty pleasure because I think that is a, a damn, damn fine book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those ideas of houses and, and, and being locked away or the secret in the house. You know, yeah. I, I love that. Rebecca. Yeah. You know, all, all those stories are, are loom very large with me. Absolutely. Well, I, I now think of Amy Dunn driving in Gone Girl down the highway completely differently mm -hmm. in relation yeah. to Psycho. There's, there's a fair amount of Marion Crane. Yeah. Oh, my Dunn. gosh. You're right. <laughs> so, Whoa. Um, Chris, what about you? What were your early artistic influences? Oh, boy. I guess, like, Back to the Future. <laughs> hey. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I mean, it turned into, you know, The Godfather and Dog Day Afternoon and uh, Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman I loved. I mean, the films of the 70s. But when I first, I think, you know, it was like Goonies and Back to the Future. <laughs> Yeah. Great. Yeah. I watched Chinatown a lot for yeah. this movie. Uh, just because it's an yeah. incredible film and you never get tired of watching it. But 
There was something about Nicholson trying to solve this case and trying to solve her that was uh, exciting to me. I mean, what's not exciting about Jack Nicholson? Right. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Patricia, what about you? <sighs> uh, I loved anything with Ingrid Bergman. I loved Lucille Ball. That tells you a lot. I loved Ingrid Bergman, I loved Lucio Ball, and I loved Peter Sellers. My father and I used to watch Peter Sellers' films all the time. The Party, and we'd watch it over and over again, and we'd laugh hysterically at the same scene we'd seen 15. <laughs> we, but I loved anything Ingrid Bergman. Gaslight had such an impact on me. I thought she was actually extraordinary. Like, I couldn't believe that she had pulled that off. Like, I couldn't believe... I, I remember thinking, oh, that's beautiful acting. Like, it, it was a, an awakening for me. Yeah. So, and I loved Lucille Ball. And I used to watch her show every, you know, when I get home. Yeah. So those were my influences. Hmm. <laughs> well, Gillian, I want to get back to the idea of, of adaptation a little bit and bringing a piece of text to the screen. I, I think about this series and Gone Girl uh, both being immersive sensory experiences. I talked about on the show when we reviewed Gone Girl, kind of walking out of that world and feeling like I was kind of entering a completely different world. It was an out-of-body experience sort of thing. In the atmosphere of, of sharp objects, it's, you feel the weight of it, um, especially as the series goes on. And obviously, credit to both you know, David Fincher and, and Jean-Marc Vallée as the directors bringing that to life on screen. But it's your original source material. They're, they're mining it from somewhere. So how do you... How do you sort of embed something like that on the page when, just watching this episode again, so much of it is about perception and us just listening and the sounds and observing and and seeing the same way that Camille is. So how do you sort of bring that to the page for them to extract? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with this episode, to me, you know, I always call it Welcome to Wind Gap. It's so much about taking a moment, I think, you know, before... Tons of the action begins to really sit with the town, and there's no better realization of what who people are and what a place is than a funeral. You know, I think that's when people get boiled down, a place gets boiled down, the masks slip, and you know, as I was writing it, it's it's you know, it's everything from writing things like the woman who's taking the Natalie Keene signs down and those moments of kindness, the neighborliness to the cattiness at the after, I always call it the after party. Right. You know, the, after, <laughs> the reception, you know. if you will. Because a lot of them yeah. are treating it as the after party. Sure. You know, they're there to, they're not there to help more and they're there to, for yeah. the free booze and the ham sandwiches. Um, you know, describing, you know, and then the script is describing what's on the table because that's, you know, it's, it's a very place sort of thing about what's being served, mm-hmm. um, who's sitting where and, you know, and, and what Natalie's room looks like what the town looks like and, and you know, and, and getting that sense of place, like you said. Yeah. Well, we are going to get to some crowd questions here, so um, maybe only have time for one more for each of you. But I have to ask about Amy Adams, who, as I said, Chris, you've worked with before. She's so wonderful in this series as she is in so many roles. Very different type of character than the last time you worked with her. Just talk about the experience of working Yeah, well, we did Julie and Julia together, and we became friends, and I constantly told her that I wanted to do something else with her besides just eat her food and tell her how great it was. And 
<laughs> and so, you know, I, I waited a long time and she called me and said, you know, read this book. And I love the book and uh, I'm happy with it. She's, she's incredible. I mean, she's a great spirit, a great person, kind. You know, she was a producer as well on this. So it was really fun to watch her as a friend juggle this extremely complicated character every day and then put on the producer hat and take care of us and look at schedule and talk about scripts. And I was, as a friend, extremely impressed, inspired, and uh, proud of her. Yeah. Patricia, your scenes with Amy are uh, some of the most thrilling and disturbing, of course, in the, uh, in the series. And you can just, as a door, you can be so sweetly savage with her. How much fun is it to, to bite into some of those lines and, and act opposite Amy? Well, I, I knew Amy. We were acquaintances. I had never worked with her, but I always, of course, have great admiration for her. I just, but I liked her first and foremost as as a woman, as a person. And she was, she's just this really whole. Like she's, she's got this wonderful husband, wonderful kid. You know, she's just amazing. She's smart and sexy and funny, and and then she's this great actress. So. We had a relationship off camera that helped us because we were quite close throughout the shooting. You know, we were shoot, drinking fake booze on the set, but then when the, we'd finish these difficult <laughs> scenes, we'd say, where's the real wine? <laughs> um, and so we, we bonded, and it's one of the highlights of my career to, to have played this character with her, and I, I can't imagine. I, I'm very fortunate, yeah. very lucky. So Gillian, what's something that Amy brings to the screen as Camille that maybe wasn't there on the page or something only Amy could bring to it? To me, I mean, I really, part of me really feels, it sounds very author but, but it feels like the book was waiting 12 years for Amy to come. I mean, I just feel like Camille wanted her to be played by Amy because that's how extraordinary she is. I'm just, I, it's just, she has this extraordinary quality of, and combination of vulnerability and yet you don't worry about her so much where that it, you're watching her in every scene and just, you yeah. can't stand it. You know what I mean? Because Amy has this strength of character and a grit to her. Amy and I have talked about like one of our favorite words is grit. Our mutual favorite words is like that is one of our highest compliments we can give someone. And Amy has grit, and Camille has grit. And I think that the two of them have found each other. And, and to me, that's what she brings to it. All right. Some questions from the audience. Gillian, I told everybody at work today, you know Gillian Flynn, she wrote all those oh, books, so I didn't know your name was pronounced Gillian, so I <laughs> uh, loved your books so much, but one thing, you know, I read the book Sharp Objects probably when it first came out, and all, one of the things that I remember the most was about the cutting, because that's so disturbing, and we're watching, my husband and I were watching the first episode, and I'm like, well, when are they going to show the cutting, when are they going to show the cutting, you know, and you didn't show it till the very end, and then I made him go back, because it was very vague, the last part of the first episode. Like, was there a reason that you waited to the very end of the first episode to show that kind of disturbing part? Well, I mean, originally in the book, it's not even revealed until about 70 pages in. So, you know, to me, part of the mystery is who is Camille. And so, you know, to me, part of the book was 
that revelation. You're getting hints of, you know, why is this woman so obsessed with, you know, sharp, obje sharp objects and, and thumbtacks and, you know, these sort of things. Why does she keep talking about these sort of things? And it's not revealed, actually, in the book until almost a third into the book. So... To me, you know, it was fine to, to wait until that very end of the episode I thought was appropriate, actually. It was was to let that have time, let you get to know who Camille is, and then wait till the very end of that episode. And, and so that's why that was made, was to not reveal it early on, to, to let you figure her out a little bit. Um, this is a question more so for Gillian and Patricia. I am a daughter of a mother, and I think we've seen a lot of these mother-daughter relationships recently, particularly with movies like... Lady Bird, and then we recently have seen it also on the horror side of things with movies like Hereditary and yeah. Quiet Place and things like that. And I was just wondering how you approached both writing and portraying such fraught um, mother-daughter relationships because even when there is a lot of love there, they are often the most kind of complicated and messy relationships we can portray in movies. And I was just kind of wondering how you guys went about working with that. I've got my crazy mom right there <laughs> looking at me. I can, I can feel her. I can feel her staring at me. My, my, my character is totally based on <laughs> Security. <laughs> no, you know, my mother said the same. My mother said, Patty, that's not me. <laughs> I said, no, mother, it's my imagination. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a dollop of you. <laughs> I think it, each mother and daughter are unique, and they, you come at them with the attributes and traits and foibles and, uh, that, that each character presents. This mother is radically different from Easy A, you know, I mean. So I think I had to honor, uh, Gillian had to honor the writing honor the fierceness and not back down from it and not and not be uh, shy of of her fierceness and her brutality because in the end when you travel with this with a door you'll see where where she goes and you'll see what comes but I think each each mother-daughter relationship is its own and it's never the same so you come at it yeah. Mm -hmm. With uh, and no one writes. It's it's her thoughts. It's her character. So it's only coming from her and no one else. So. Gillian, um, I was wondering if you could be so kind to share your trials and tribulations. You mentioned about twelve years before you got this project done, what you had to go through as a producer. I've I've been kind of working on something for about ten years. Oh. If you could be so kind. I had to write this book called Gone Girl <laughs> that, that made people want to do some of my other projects. I mean, I, I joke, but a little bit is true. Um, this was a book that people weren't that weren't super interested in, frankly. Uh, people for a long time were not interested in this subject. Were not interested in doing anything about dark female troubled women. They just weren't. I wrote this in the era of, you know, in the height of kind of chick lit and Devil Wears Prada and, you know, Bridget Jones and that was what was selling and that was what people were interested in and 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 they were not interested in this and it just kind of it just sad. It would get some nibbles or get picked up and dropped and nothing really came of it. And then Gone Girl 
sold and that really helped show people that people were interested in, in that type of subject matter, that that did sell, that you could make money off of it. I mean, it comes down to, frankly, can, you know, in a way, can you make money off of it? So it really wasn't necessarily, I, I would love to say, like, I was hustling and I was, you know, out there, you know, and it was, it was some sort of magic thing. And it wasn't. I think it really was the fact that, you know, there was a breakthrough as far as just showing people that they're proving to people that there was interest in this type of, of subject matter was what it, what it ultimately boiled down to. I have a question about the music. Music plays such a strong role in the HBO, uh, even these first two episodes that we've seen. Is that the director's influence, or is that part of your script in the book, the songs and the soundtrack and what all the characters listen to? As the director. John Mark Valley. Yeah. He's is, a DJ. I mean, he's, he's a, he is, yeah. he's, that he's, man he knows his music. On that, all the time. You know, Jean Marc was a dancer when he was younger, and he's a very, you know, he's musically driven. And yeah, it means a lot to him. It, it yes. really drives the way he, I think, even thinks mm -hmm. of a scene. Of a scene. Sort of Everything yeah. is, is balletic almost. And, and, Sometimes, sometimes he would play the song sometimes. for us. Yeah, some, he, he, he was supposed to make us like playlists for our characters. That never happened no, for me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting. <laughs> so I'm from Missouri, so I love that all your books are set back home. Um, but one of the things that really like threw me off when I first started watching the show was that she was from St. Louis and not from Chicago, which just was really different because I'm personally from St. Louis myself, moved to Chicago. It is quite far away. And for a character to be from the south of Missouri to even move to Chicago is even more hours. She's more removed from her hometown. So why is she set so close in the TV show? We thought it made more sense for a newspaper from St. Louis to send someone to cover a Missouri murder that was at least within a day's driving distance than it made for someone from Chicago. Ultimately, the more we, the more we talked about it and tried to explain about it and just geographically made more sense. And I don't want to do any spoiler alerts, but there are a couple other like little, little mystery tidbits that come up and some logistical stuff too as far as purely characters looking into Camille that just... She had to, it had to be St. Louis. It had to be a place uh, somewhere that you could drive to and get to and access. So mostly logistical and mostly kind of pure. Does this make sense? <laughs> this is for Gillian. Uh, Looking back on your three novels, I was wondering how you could describe your female protagonist's sexuality. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. That's a big question. <laughs> I, I would say, I would say hot. <laughs> We're gonna go with a bang tonight. Yep. <laughs> Super sexy sexuality, I would say. The representation and whether attracts you, because we don't really see that in any of the relationships with each movie. It's true. It's true. Um, I guess I haven't spent that much time. You're, you know, I, I think Camille's probably oriented heterosexual. You only see her with 
having sex with, with men. I don't know about Amy. <laughs> and, or, I'm sorry. It's a, yeah, I don't know about Amy. I think Amy is like just like whatever's going to sort of, she's a sociopath. So it's like. Yeah, not Amy what? Adams. Yeah, not Amy Adams. Excuse me. <laughs> Amy Adams is not a Clarify. sociopath. <laughs> Amy Adams is lovely. This just went off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. Elliot. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see the headlines tomorrow. <laughs> Amy, Amy Elliott of Gone Girl is a sociopath. And, you know, I have to say it's a very equal opportunity, whatever gets the job done. <laughs> well, uh, Patricia, we can now have the wine. Um, we're we're going to go uh, upstairs to what is actually an after party, in this case, Gillian. So uh, thank you so much to everyone who came out. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia Clarkson, Chris Messina, Gillian Flint. My thanks to HBO for inviting me to moderate that Sharp Objects panel discussion. They really were all lovely and very thoughtful, I thought, with their answers. Josh, you are one of those listeners who has not watched this series yet, but you did listen to the conversation. Any takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I I love how Flynn talks about movies, mm-hmm. and you can tell she is a cinephile and is really into totally. them. And maybe that's why she's able to take this really unique attitude towards her own material, I think. She, she doesn't seem precious about it at all. Right away, she recognizes, okay, if, if this thing I wrote is going to become a movie or a series, there are necessary changes for the better of it that are going to have to be made. So, so yeah, it's always refreshing to hear, hear an artist talk in those terms. And really, in terms of doing TV, too, to hear Clarkson describe very interesting how to conceptualize a character and what was the phrase she used to, to carry a character for a distance mm-hmm. if you're doing a series. Hadn't, hadn't heard someone put it that way before. Yeah, it really does neatly articulate the differences in the mediums, right? Obviously, theater is very different because it's alive in that moment yeah. and you only Super have that performance, compressed. but you're going to get it multiple times. The movie just happens that one time over the course of all the different happens that one time on screen, but took all that time to piece together. And then over the course of a series like this, you really do get to dig into a character a little bit more. And boy, does Patty Clarkson dig into Adora, the mother that she plays here in the movie. I was going to say that we had finally gotten away from all superhero talk going to this Amy Adams series. But of course, Amy Adams was... Lois Lane. This is true. In the DC Superman and Batman movies. She is not playing Lois Lane, though she is playing a reporter in Sharp Objects. Again, I think five of the eight episodes have already aired. All those episodes are available via HBO On Demand if you're curious. And if you'd like to share any thoughts about the series or the panel or anything else, you can reach us feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is our show. We now have to go off to our respective homes and furiously plan for next week's show, our review of Black Klansman and our top five Spike Lee shots. While we're doing that, you can head over to filmspotting.net and find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking, are you looking forward to the happy time murders? Why or why not? (laughs) Why is really more of an existential question from Sam. He really wants to know why. (laughs) Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister show. That's the next picture show. It's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or via your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend, summer 1993, an acclaimed 2017 film from Spain from first-time feature director Carla Simone. It's about a six-year-old girl who is sent to live with her uncle in the country after the death of her mother. And in wide release, Dog Days, a group of interconnected people in L.A. who are brought together by their lovable canine counterparts, the Meg, deep-sea submersible pilot Jason Statham, 
accidentally unleashes the 70-foot ancestor of the great white shark. Surely you've seen this trailer. I have. <laughs> and it's kind of fun. Slender Man, the story of a tall, thin figure with unnaturally long arms, a featureless face who is reputed to be responsible for the haunting and disappearance of countless children and teens is also out. And Black Klansman does open Spike Lee, the true story of an African-American cop who infiltrates a KKK chapter in Colorado. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach some new listeners. Our music this week is by Black Pumas. For more information, visit blackpumas.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I thought you close. I you never cease to amaze me. A little too much hyena, maybe. Wow. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.